Good. It's very exciting to be able to uh, spend some time in the Word uh, on this uh, very auspicious occasion, that is Father's Day. Um, And uh, we are reminded, of course, not only of our human fathers, but we're reminded of our Heavenly Father and how He cares for us and sustains us, how He went and sought us and bought us and uh, saved us and granted us faith to believe and to act. And we're going to talk about faith again. In fact, we're going to be talking about faith for quite a while as we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you find your way to chapter 11, we're looking um, at verse 4 this morning. That's really the only time we have is for verse 4. And uh, while you're preparing, it's... uh, as usual, uh, a good opportunity for me to say a few introductory words. So I'll begin by saying that humans are worshipful beings. That's the way God made us. The fall didn't change that fact, of course. And until Jesus comes a second time to close out history as we know it, every single person born into this world is born a worshiper. The fall didn't change that fact, but the fall did change the object of worship for fallen humanity. It changed the object. Where Adam was created to worship God only, the uh, fallen humanity worships everything else but. All people are worshipers by nature, and they worship something. There's never any neutral ground. Paul himself made this clear in Romans chapter 1. You might remember he speaks of how humanity exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. That's verse 23. It goes on in verse 25 to say, For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshipped and served the, crea- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Did you notice the language there? He uses the word exchanged twice and then spells it out a third time. They served the creature rather than the creator. I think it's interesting that he didn't say they simply rejected God. No, they worshipped the creation in place of God. That's the idea. And just to be clear, unbelievers who worship the creation cannot worship God. Jesus said that you cannot serve two masters. Do you remember? Because you'll, you'll love one and you'll hate the other. So unbelievers always worship but they never worship the God of the Bible. At the fall, humanity made the switch, and they stuck with it, uh, and they are stuck with it. They redirected their affections off God and onto something else, and that's the way it's always been, and it'll always be that way. The fact that humans are worshipers by nature, well, it shows up in every area of life, even language, our own language. We, we cannot escape the language of worship. <clears throat> it's all over our vocabulary. Sometimes people are very deliberate about it. I worship my kids, someone says. Or he worships his coach. Or what she won't do for her boss. She worships the ground that he walks on. You've heard them all before. But at other times, people are quite unaware that they are using worship language or engaging in worship activities. Oh yeah. Take the diehard fans of a particular football team, for example. Their stadium is their church. 
They sit on the side that represents their team, naturally. They wave team banners. They wear team jerseys with the number of their favorite player printed on the back. They may paint their faces with team colors or dress like the team mascot. And they can get pretty intense, even violent, at times. Fans are very spiritual. I don't know if you knew that. They're very spiritual. They practice strange and superstitious rituals so as not to jinx their beloved team for an upcoming game. Wearing the same socks for weeks, not shaving, getting out of only one side of the bed. It's all complete and utter nonsense, but it's real to them. Being a fan is often like practicing a religion. And it's not just in the world of sports. Now, go to a rock concert, if you dare, and you'll see plenty of evidence for religious rituals. Chanting, swaying, violent gesticulations, nonstop screaming, hands stretched into the air in direction of the performers. Huh, sounds a lot like the contemporary worship services, I know. And these worshipers pay lots of money to pay homage to their beloved musicians. Maybe you've never thought about those contexts as worship contexts, but they are. Fans obsess over famous personalities, even live vicariously at times through them, fantasizing about being one of them. But sports enthusiasts and deadheads are not the only avid worshipers around. Oh, no. There are plenty of people who are just as devoted to some object, but their worship contexts are much subtler. There are people who love alcohol. They love it so much, they get drunk. Often they drink to the detriment of their health and sometimes to their death. They worship the bottle or the feeling that they crave by means of the bottle. Others crave alternate states of consciousness and will deplete their bank account for a drug fix. And when they've run out of their own money, then they'll steal from others. Addicts will risk jail time, poor health, and even ODing just for the love of tripping. Stalking is a form of worship. Kidnapping is a form of worship. Binge-watching episodes of The Twilight Zone can be idolatrous. Hobbies can become idols. What are the common denominators in all of these instances? Well, strong desires, cravings, passions. The notion that if I cannot have what I want so badly, I will be unhappy. And God help you if you're around. The thing that they want so badly, of course, is called an idol. Sports team, rock group, past, or the past, the relationship, an activity. It could be anything, really. And the worshiper is an idolater, which, by the way, is the technical name that the Bible has for unbelievers. Didn't know if you knew that. The idolater will serve his or her idol in all kinds of ways. Bow to it. Serve it. There are idols for all occasions, so many who are ruled by them don't even know that they're deep into idolatry. This is the deceptive, deceptive thing about it all. I said that many of these contexts are subtle. But listen to this. Whatever you fear most in life, whatever you love most in life, or even hate most in life, 
can rule you. That's right. Fear, love, and hate belong to the language of worship. In each of those instances, you devote some to some object a portion of your thought life, maybe a lot of your thought life. Your activities center around it. If it dictates the way you dress, carry on, and where you go or don't go, depending on whether or not, whether or not you want to avoid it or be close to it, you are serving it unawares. Here's more from our language of worship. Obsession, dreaming, fantasizing. Maybe I should say daydreaming. Vicarious, idolize, fixate. You see, God made us with strong passions and strong desires that are supposed to be directed toward him. And when people redirect those passions onto something else, that something else becomes, at that moment, an, the object of their affection, and they serve it. It should come as no surprise, then, that the New Testament worship terminology incorporates many of these same words and others to redirect people's affections back to God. That's really the essence of the gospel, isn't it? To change the object of our worship from the creation back to the creator. Consider this short list of worship terms and their contexts. Love is one of them. We mentioned that already in another context. Love. Jesus said that the greatest and foremost commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, love God with everything that's in you, within you with your whole being. Heart, soul, and mind are different words for the same thing in this context, and that is the inner self, the real you, your control center, the very core of your being. Now, Jesus is talking then about fervent, comprehensive, sincere, and genuine love. Now, this is the language of worship. And by the way, it comes from a context of worship. What Jesus gives us here is his summary of the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, which has to do with our relationship with God. You remember the first one that heads the list? Have no other gods before me. Worship me only, in other words. No one else, nothing else. So to violate this commandment translates into idolatry. Jesus, of course, being God, would then say later in Matthew 10, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He would also say, I must come before anyone in your life, even father, mother, brother, sister. That is to say, in any situation where, we, where we're faced with either pleasing Christ on the one hand or pleasing someone else on the other, Jesus must win out every time. The idea is believers choose Jesus every time because they love him so much. And the display of obsession by fans for the favorite rock group cannot even touch this kind of worship that Jesus calls for. If you, if you, were ever, if you ever wondered why Jesus refers to himself in the book of Revelation as our first love, now you know. It's first, or he's first, in this context, meaning that he is the only one, he is the preeminent one. He'll not share his glory with another, and he'll not tolerate his disciples loving someone else more 
then they should love him. Another word or another term for in our worship context is no. No. And I'm talking about an intimate relationship, not intellectual facts. According to Matthew 7, Jesus will banish apostates from his presence at the judgment because he didn't know them. Now, if no in this context meant merely an intellectual recognition of others, well, then Jesus has a lapse of memory at this moment. But of course he doesn't. Jesus knows of the existence of every person in history. But he doesn't have an intimate relationship with everyone in history. So knowing in the Bible sometimes is another word for loving. And I might add, foreknowing alongside predestination is really for loving. Didn't God command his love toward us while we were still sinners? Another term for worship is fear. Fear. Jesus warns in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God more than anything out there. Let God rule you, no one else. It's God that you'll have to answer to at the end of time, no one else. Regard him more than you would anyone else, even yourself. Peter and John feared God rather than man, and they were able to continue preaching the gospel in Jerusalem in spite of the threats from religious authorities not to. You might remember, it's recorded in Acts chapters 4 and 5. Fear, you know, can be paralyzing. It can be paralyzing. It can be ruling. And when it prevents you from worshiping God, you can be sure that that which you fear is that which you serve and you bow down to. Another worship term is self-denial. Jesus said, unless you deny yourself, pick up your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. True worship of God necessitates self-denial. True believers exalt God in the place of self. Unbelievers, uh, Unbelievers, of course, by nature exalt self in the place of God. That's worship terminology. How about follow, the word follow? In John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will follow me. He will follow my word and my father will love him and we will come into him and make our dwelling with him. A follower or disciple could be in the ancient world just a learner, same today. But it's more than that in Christianity. A follower of Jesus is a full-blown worshiper of Jesus who would follow Jesus off a cliff if that were somehow necessary, right? Love, know, fear, deny, follow. This is the language of worship. And this morning, I want to add the word faith to that list. Faith is the language of worship as well. It's really what makes true worship of God, God of the Bible, a reality. Our worship of God, a reality. We've spent a couple of weeks now talking about biblical faith in Hebrews 11, just the first three verses. And that's the kind that is a gift of God, who gives it by the Holy Spirit's inner working at regeneration. So it's the possession of true believers only. And what's more, this faith is active 
in believers. It produces fruit in them. And that's why a convert will forsake all to follow Christ. Now, we've been talking about the essence of faith at verses 1 through 3. This morning, we embark on an examination into the practice of this faith from verses 4 to 40, basically the rest of the chapter. And that is, we're looking at how faith works in our lives, what it does for our walk with Christ. So, with that, let's look at the text. We're in verse 4. We come really to the beginning of a rather impressive list. And I want us to see how the principle of living by faith works out in living color, as the author wants us to see as well. We have time really for only Abel. And we read in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith. Let's stop there. We see that true faith determines the difference between God's acceptance of Abel and his rejection of Cain. That's what it says. By means of exercising faith, Abel offered and was accepted. But Cain did not offer by faith and he was rejected. Do you see that? That's what it says. Now it's important to grasp this Because there is a view out there, and it's actually a rather popular view, that argues what made the difference here between the acceptance and the rejection is the offering itself. God rejected Cain's offering because it was not a blood sacrifice, in other words. As I say, it's a a rather common view. Let me tell you why that is not the case. That is actually an incorrect understanding of the text for at least four reasons. Here we go. The first reason is that this view overlooks the fact that Abel was a herdsman and that Cain was a gardener and that the two would have naturally offered the Lord the fruit of their own hands. But, argues this other view, Cain needed an animal in order to make a sin offering and he should have bartered with Abel for an animal. But that's nowhere indicated in the text, is it? It doesn't say or even hint that this offering was a sin offering, nor does it indicate that that Cain should have procured an animal for for his brother. That's conjecture. Nothing in the text says this at all. In fact, the Genesis account gives every indication that what God rejected was the heart of the worshiper that offered the sacrifice. In other words, it was the attitude of the worshiper and not his offering that made the difference. Let me draw your attention to Genesis chapter 4. This is where the writer goes, of course, to make his quote or to make his his point in verse 4. Chapter 4 of Genesis, verses 3 and 4, this is what it says. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Okay, second reason why this view is incorrect that suggests it's the offering 
is that it overlooks the Hebrew terms or term for offering. This is where knowing Hebrew helps out. You have to remember that when you read this passage, the person who wrote Genesis, Moses, is the same person who wrote Leviticus. And in Leviticus, Moses has a number of terms that he uses for various kinds of offerings that are all acceptable in God's sight, each kind for different purposes. One of them is called minka, a minka. And a minka, according to Leviticus, simply refers to an acceptable sacrifice. This is the exact word that Moses uses in Genesis 4 to describe both Cain's and Abel's offering. So Cain offered the first fruits of his crop and Abel the firstborn of his cattle. Since both offered something that would have ordinarily been acceptable to God from their own labors, the offering itself cannot be the issue here. It was an acceptable sacrifice, a minka, technical term in, in, the, in the Levitical code. The third reason this view <clears throat> is incorrect is that it overlooks the word order that, that, uh, this, that this points to in the Hebrew Bible, which the English translations also preserve. The word order has each man listed first, followed by his specific offering. And the Lord regard, had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This order is very deliberate. By it, Moses tells us that the legitimate sacrifices are, not, are no guarantee that God would be pleased. Isn't that something? You can bring the right offering, and it's still would not please the Lord. They must be offered in faith by, by the true worshiper. Moses uses this kind of word order in another place, actually in many places in the Pentateuch, but the, one of the most well-known is Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6, he speaks to families, and this is what he says. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Sound familiar? <clears throat> These words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. He's talking to parents. What's so significant about this command to love God sincerely and comprehensively and that, and that the word has to be at the center of their heart is that this becomes the prerequisite for parenting mentioned in verse 7. Verse 7 says, And you shall... You shall repeat them diligently, that is the words, to your sons and speak to them when you sit down in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So the word order of these three verses shows or teaches us that before parents can ever hope to be successfully teaching their children God's truths, they themselves must first believe it and trust it and live it out. Because it takes a genuine believer who lives by faith in the words of God in order to raise children to do the same. Moses does the same thing here in Genesis 4 with the word order. By placing the men first before their particular sacrifices, he's really saying that God regarded Abel, but he didn't regard Cain, which is why God accepted Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's. It wasn't the offerings themselves. They were quite legitimate. It was the hearts of the worshipers. One loved God, 
the other one didn't. Moses also shows each, or shows us rather, where each man's heart is by the way they prepared their offering or did it, as the case may be. Nothing is said of Cain's preparation at all. Moses tells us that Cain simply brought his offering to God. Isn't that nice of him? Abel, however, went out of his way to prepare the best of the best. You say, where does it say that? Well, the text says that Abel not only brought the firstling, right? It says after that, but also from their fat portions. This is another way of saying that of all the firstborn of his cattle without spot and blemish, he looked for the fattest one he could find. The first among, we, among equals, the blue ribbon winner, and gave that one to God. Again, God's acceptance or rejection of these men had nothing to do with their offerings. Both are called minka. And it had everything to do with, their, with the status of their hearts. Abel was a true worshiper. Cain wasn't. Cain goes through the motions. God rejects it. Cain, uh, Abel offers some of the same kinds of activity before God, but with a genuine heart of faith. And he is commended. Fourth and final reason that this view is incorrect is that it overlooks the significance of God's counsel to Cain. This comes a little bit later when God tells the very hateful and resentful Cain in verse 7, if you do what's right, won't you feel better? That's my translation, paraphrase. Those who insist that the sacrifice itself is the issue here will argue that Cain simply needed to offer another sacrifice, this time round a blood sacrifice. Well, if he did that, he would be accepted. Well, in light of what we've just argued about the technical term for sacrifice here, as well as the word order, the conclusion has to be that God was telling Cain not to get the right offering, but to get right with him. It's another way for God to say, look it, start offering the best of your crops by faith. Not out of a legalistic or dutiful ritual. And once you start approaching me by faith, and I am pleased and I accept the first fruits of your crop, here's the result. You will be content. Another way to put it is, overcome your murderous thoughts and your depression brought on by jealousy and envy by loving me and being and not being concerned about yourself by pleasing me instead of yourself. That's what people of biblical faith do. They put God first. They seek his pleasure and approval. They deny themselves. This is the secret of contentment. As we mentioned and made much of last week. Well, the rest of the verse tells us that Abel's faith revealed him to be a righteous person, and the outward confirmation of that came in God's acceptance of Abel's gift or sacrifice. So in this instance... I'm going to repeat this. This is the bottom line here. Genuine faith, saving faith, a faith that obeys is a faith that worships genuinely. A faith that worships genuinely. It renders a sacrifice of praise to God that God delights in and accepts. 
Now, the rest of the men and women mentioned in this great list of Hebrews 11 that we'll look at later, they will show us how faith allowed them to live in different contexts, especially those of persecution. But it is noteworthy that the writer begins this list with Abel's acceptable worship because worshiping God is the most important aspect of the Christian life. It's foundational. It's the ultimate goal behind everything that we do, as I mentioned in my introduction. Just as eternal life begins with genuine saving faith, so glorifying and pleasing God begins with with right and proper worship. Well, what can we take away from Hebrews 11.4 in the few moments we have left? Well, at the very least, I have three things. At the very least, I would say that if we have genuine faith, a faith that worships, then we should exercise this faith and worship God aggressively. We should worship God aggressively. We know that unbelievers cannot do this, right? They cannot because they are fallen and they have no desire to love God, much less serve Him. And their, their, their affection is for creation for gods, that is, idols of all kinds. But you ought to know that believers can have idols too. Now, because they are not by nature idolaters, for they have been saved by grace through faith, committing idolatry is not in keeping with who they are. So if we ever find ourselves wanting something so badly, even something that the Bible says is good, to the point where we will be miserable if we don't have it, then we have become like the idolater. We have misplaced our affection. Let me be very specific with an example of something good, since sinful objects are obvious, something that we need to steer clear from. How about respect? Respect is, 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 uh, is good, I think. It's, it's, it's good to want. We should want to be respectable. We should want to have a reputation of being respectable. We should want people to respect us. Uh, but if they don't, what then? What then? Well, if we love Jesus more than we want, say, our children's respect or, or our spouse's respect or or our close friends' respect, then we'll go to the Bible and we'll find out how Jesus, our first love, wants us to handle the situation, and then we'll go to it. If, on the other hand, we love the status of respect more than we love Jesus at this particular time, then we'll go outside the Bible and do whatever it takes to get it maybe even rationalizing that it's a good thing for us to be respectable, you see. And when we do that, we can be sure that we don't have God's approval. Many other good things can become idolatrous. Christians can want a pain-free life, a trustworthy spouse, a particular ministry, evangelizing loved ones to the point where they see them saved. We could want all of these things, and all of these things are good. The Bible applauds them, but God is sovereign, right? And we're not always assured of these things, even though they are holy pursuits. 
The question is whether we care more about pleasing Christ when these things are are in jeopardy, or we will direct our love, our worship to them and do whatever it takes to obtain them. Can you see how that works? I know pastors who wanted the ministry in their church to be so successful, but they wanted it more than they wanted to please Christ. And how did that show up? Well, rather than seek to please Christ in a way that that would have them to respond in these situations, respond to the ministry as a whole, which would be to have been patient and teaching people, leading them along, modeling and praying with them, they resorted to tactics that lay outside the scope of Scripture and tried to strong-arm an outcome that they believed was desirable, even even God-honoring outcome. But it came by different means, right? Forcing events, manipulating outcomes, canceling people's memberships, warning them not to come to church, gossiping and spreading lies about godly people in the church who didn't agree with them, and so on. You know the scene. Sadly, it's a familiar one. happens all over the place. What is sadder is that God does not accept these expressions of their worship. If they're born again, they operate not by faith, but by their own strength. These kinds of things, which the Bible lauds, are things that have become obsessions to them. And rather than seek to please Christ in the way that they minister in the absence of these things, they want them so bad that they go ahead and, and try and obtain them by means that are not biblical, means that are not acceptable by God. And that means the outcome is not acceptable either, even though they may create the outcome themselves. It can happen to any one of us. Make sure you direct your affections toward God. Love him more than anything and desire to please your first love more than anyone, even your own self. And you'll find yourself running to the word to know how God would want you to handle a particular situation. Well, here's something else that we can take away from this. Worshiping God, biblical that biblical faith allows, is the most important aspect of the Christian life. Worshiping God is the most important aspect of the Christian life. In fact, it is the Christian life. Many Christians mistakenly restrict worship to the Sunday morning worship service where the body gathers. Uh, It's where we sing and where we pray and we give up our offerings and we fellowship and we feel real good about it and kind of hang on until the next time we get together. But, But this is a misconception. Worshiping God involves our whole lives. The psalmist says, I go to bed with you on my mind and when I wake up, that's where you are. You're the first thing I think about. Paul settled this issue, by the way, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and and 2, where he says to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, You may not have noticed until now the connection between worshiping God with our whole lives, 
God's will for our lives and what is acceptable and perfect. Pulling it all together, God's will for us is that we present to him a life of worship and service because that is what he deems to be acceptable and perfect. You'll get your arms around this once you realize that as spiritual beings who are by virtue of the new birth, worshipers of God, everything we do is an act of worship to God. It should be. There's no bifurcation between the secular and the sacred. We hear that all the time. No, your, your life belongs to God. We're to glorify him with it in everything we do. The issue in the Christian life then is not whether everything we do is an act of worship. It is. For Cain, Cain's act was one of worship. But whether our acts of worship are practiced in faith, like Abel's, believing them to be God's will. Only in that way are we assured God's approval and our, and our contentment. We can never render to God activities that are in, in accordance with his will but are, but like, like Cain, but we are to be like Abel in that we give God the best that we have in every instance. You see how important that is? We, we, can, we can render to God activities that are in accordance with his will as Cain did and still have them be refused. We still have no approval from God. And that's because we didn't offer them in faith. When we offer them in faith, as Abel did, we give God the best we have in every instance. God wants our best always. A person with a genuine biblical faith puts God first and gives God his best always. There's never anything we render to God that's half-hearted. There should never be. Here's what the text asks us. How often do you put God first in your life and give him the best, the best of your money, the best of your property, the best of your energy, the best of your thought and your time? And how would giving God the best in this circumstance solve some aspect of the problems that might be facing you in your life right now? In other words, maybe you're not putting God first in a particular situation, and if you were, then the problems you're facing wouldn't be there. Faith, believing that God really wants to be put first and wants the best from his children, that makes all the difference in our Christian walk. Finally, one last application. The best way to model scriptural truth is to live it by faith. That's the best way to model scriptural truth. The last part of Genesis 4, 4, which I left off in the reading of it, is instructive here. <clears throat> Speaking of Abel, Moses says, and through faith, though he, oh, I'm sorry, the, not Moses, but the writer to the Hebrews in, in Hebrews eleven four 4 says that through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. This is Abel. The fact that Abel lived by faith, a faith that assured him of the right way to live before God in order to please God, even though he's dead, he's been dead for thousands of years, the example 
of his life by faith remains a testimony to the principle of living by faith. It's a testimony. In one sense, we can say the same about each Old Testament saint that's listed in Hebrews 11. Though they all are dead, their lives bear tribute to the life of faith. That's why he recorded them. So at the close of your days, at the close of your days, will there be anything to which others may point that testifies to your faith? If not, then either you don't have genuine faith, in which case you should believe and repent and be saved. Or, if you are a believer, then start exercising faith. Faith, as James says, is seen in righteous works that Paul said God ordained long ago that we should walk in them. Father, we're grateful for your goodness to 